The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Thanks so much, Carl. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Dominic Chu, and for Scott Wapner today, stocks giving up big gains as we kick off a new trading month. We've got a two-day Fed policy meeting on rates beginning today. So is that so-called pivot coming? and how you should position your portfolio on the back of October's big gains and another Fed rate hike coming this week. We'll debate that and more with our investment committee today. It's Bryn Talkington. Also joining me live on set, I love seeing this by the way, three people on set, Liz Young, Stephanie Link, and Josh Brown all in front of me right now. Let's get a check on where markets stand at this hour. As you can see here, we were up bigger earlier in the morning. The Dow hit its highest level since last August, and the S&P hit its highest level in six weeks. But those earlier gains have evaporated. They're gone. And well, we're well in the red right now. The S&P is down just about a half a percent. Same with the Nasdaq Composite, as well as the Dow. It's pretty even marginal, fractional losses on a relative basis. Maybe we'll start with Liz on just the current state of play as you see things right now. This has been a nice rally for the last few days. Is this something we can believe in in your mind? It's been a nice rally for the last month, I would argue. And look, it's no secret that the big story this week is the Fed. And today is an anticipation of what we might hear from them tomorrow. This rally, much of it was predicated on the idea that there might be some sort of dovish language or some sort of language that would encourage people that there was, we'll call it a slowdown coming in hikes. But if everybody saw that jolts number today, that just reinforces the fact that this labor market continues to be tight, reinforces the Fed's discomfort with this tight labor market and the fact that, in my opinion, they still need to hike through the end of the year and not necessarily stop after that. It's a foregone conclusion. They have to. I mean, that's the whole idea. They've been pretty clear about this. And they would lose credibility, the Fed, if they didn't do this. Stephanie, I, I wonder, though, as you take a look at the way things are playing out right now, there, there's an argument to be made that the markets have fallen by enough where they've already factored in many of these moves. But then the other side of the argument is, no, 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 inflation is still a very persistent problem. We've got a long ways to go. The terminal rate, so to speak, is still way off in the distance. Right. So for the Fed to pivot, it's they have two things that they're watching, jobs and inflation. And as Liz just mentioned, we just had one more million job openings out there. I mean, it was huge. That was a huge number, huge. right? So the job market remains very strong. The inflation market part of the market is also very strong, right? I mean, you had an ECI at 5.2% year over year. You had core PCE at 4.9% year over year. That's well above the 2% that the Fed really wants. So I don't think the Fed is going to pivot. And I, by the way, don't even care if they do 50 or 75 in December because it's not going to matter. They're going to have to stay uh, higher for longer. And, and that's why I don't think they're going to pivot. And that's why we're rallying. 
we could give it back. Now, that being said, we're down 19 percent on the year, right? Expectations are really low. Sentiment is really, really low. Uh, and seasonally, this is a good time in the marketplace. The fourth quarter is usually the strongest, especially after midterm elections. So I get why we're rallying, but I don't think it's because of the pivot, and I don't expect the Fed to pivot. So, Josh, there are so many arguments to be made right now that this is a situation going to the fourth quarter that seasonably strong time of year. We've got the midterms as a big catalyst. You've also, you're just coming off the best month for the Dow since 1976 at this point. You could argue that every dip that, that's out there has been bought, at least for the last couple of weeks now. Is the path of least resistance to the upside at this stage or to the downside? You know, people forget that there's a third choice, which is chop and flat. And that has really been the best bet to make this year. One of the, the, the things that we've been trying to do with our appearances here on the air every week is to just highlight this idea that when the VIX gets too elevated up into the mid-30s, no matter how you feel about Biden or the economy or China or whatever, that's the moment where you have to go out and find something to buy. Conversely, when things get a little bit too chilled out and we see that VIX drifting down, 22, 21, that's when we're probably underpricing the risk of some sort of scary headline, whether it's on inflation or Eastern Europe. And that's the time to look at your portfolio and ask yourself, do I really want all 27 of these stocks? Maybe am I better off with 25? Or have I ridden this stock up too many points? So if you had been using, utilizing that framework as your playbook this year, you're having an okay year. It's not so terrible. So this idea of the path of least resistance, I wish I could tell you, I think we zoom back to highs. The market has gotten completely comfortable with 5% Fed funds rate. I don't think it has. And I don't think the economy is going to hold up that well as we get into Q1. It's just too high of a rate to assume that all of these great consumer businesses that make up the S&P can flourish in that environment. A lot of them just cannot, will not. I want to say one positive thing before I, I finish. If you know that's the environment, why don't you spend your time focusing instead on the types of sectors and ideas that work really well with higher costs in the economy and things where the consumer really has no choice? Natural gas has been a great play. We've talked about those names. I want to introduce another one. The insurance sector, almost every name in this group, the 40 names in the S&P 500 insurance sector are within 3 to 5 percent of record high prices. Almost all of them. Go pick one. I'm going to show you the ETF very quickly. Patty, give me IAK. This is the S&P 500 insurance ETF. It's got 40 some odd holdings. Look at this chart. There's like nothing like this in the market right now. It's up 10% year to date versus an S&P down 20. This is the type of area where you can find stocks that have charts that are going from the lower left to the upper right. They're not expensive, good dividends, huge pricing power catastrophic weather events give them the ability to get higher policy renewal rates and higher prices for those policies. The market is responding. This is what you want to try to do this year. Not worry about an overall melt up for the S&P. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting, Liz, because if you looked at the earnings reports from Allstate and, and from travelers over the last couple of weeks, yeah, they're killing it. They basically are saying that they can pass on some of these price increases because people just have to pay them. There's no alternative, so to speak, for the, for many of these property and casualty names. Mm -hmm. Are there other are there other types of stocks, industries, groups out there that you think are kind of resistant to this higher cost environment that we're in, ones that could have a medium to longer term runway if we continue on this kind of economic path of, you know, yes, some modest growth perhaps, but costs out, outpacing that growth altogether? Okay. 
Sure. So here's here's how I would think about it. And I, I do think that that's a good suggestion looking at insurance, looking at financials. Here's how I would think about it for the next few months. Split it up into services and goods, right? Look at companies that are making goods versus companies that are really dependent on services. Steph mentioned the ECI, the Employment Cost Index. Wage inflation is very sticky. The jobs report that we got today is going to keep it sticky. That is a huge cost for companies that are labor intensive and who have a bulk of their costs built up in people. So those are the things that are going to continue to pressure margins going forward. My opinion is that a lot of stocks had these macro headwinds priced in. We knew that rate hikes were coming. We knew inflation was a problem, but they didn't necessarily have a hit to earnings priced in yet. As inflation falls, it's going to fall faster in goods than it is in services. So companies that are goods intensive and can benefit from that fall in goods prices are going to see a better tailwind as inflation comes down. You know, anecdotally, Brent, I want to bring into the conversation here. Anecdotally speaking, we've already got some headlines on the jobs front out of the airline industry specifically, where we're seeing pilots at companies like Delta, United, maybe not like the contracts that are being proposed for them in the coming years. That means higher wages have to be brought to the table in order for the for them to get some kind of deal. I I wonder, in this kind of environment, we've talked about energy-type stocks. We've talked about things that are more inflation hedging, if you will. What parts now are attractive if people are saying energy maybe is still relatively expensive, or or, or is it? Well, energy is definitely not expensive. I mean, first of all, energy has had a great year, right? I think the XLE, we're up 65%. But if you go back the last 10 years, Energy's been in the low single digits. Um, XLE has a PE around nine, a free cash flow yield of around 11. So regardless of this year's return, energy continues to be the cheapest sector in the market, actually with the most leverage. And in an inflationary environment, energy does really well. I want to go back to something though that Josh said that I thought was really, really interesting, is that about the chop this year, that if we continue to have chop in the market, you know, really what we've been doing is selling calls all year because that volatility is higher. And to Josh's second point about the VIX, like a simple VIX chart, if you would have been buying the VIX around 30, 31, and then selling around 24, that's been a good trading, trading perspective. And I think that probably continues. And then, you know, I was thinking through as the year's coming to a close, you know, this has really not been, we've had the conversation so many times, you know, should you be in stocks or should you not be in stocks? And I've been in the camp, you want to be in the stocks, you want to be in stocks clearly, but what type of stocks do you want to own? And I think continuing to go into next year, you know, selling calls, but also as a strategy instead of just a sector, screening for companies that have a high free cash flow yield. So I went and looked at the companies in the Russell 1000 that have the highest free cash flow yield. And guess what two sectors you get? You get energy and healthcare, but you get great names like Regeneron, Gilead, Chevron, Exxon, Um, Valero, Philips, Conoco. And so I think as an investor, you really have to broaden your lens and just not be so like sector oriented per per se, but make a bit bit broader and think about strategies across sectors. And so then you get that good diversification, but with the quality of that free cash flow yield. We've uh, spoken a lot about the economic data points at play right now. So let's bring in our CNBC senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. Steve, we've spoken a lot. We've brought into the conversation the data points around things like jobs, employment costs, PCE, just inflation overall in general. There is a case to be made that today's market declines from the highs happened after the strong jobs data. 
What exactly then does that say about what the Fed has to look forward to over the next couple of days as they deliberate what the market is already pricing in as a three quarters of one percent rate increase tomorrow? Well, for sure, they're going the wrong way. You know, another million of job openings. Uh, you know, my, my good friend and colleague from Chicago presented that as good news, and he's right for workers, but it's not good news uh, when it comes to the Fed and the attempt to make uh, or create more slack in the economy. I think the Fed's going to have to come up with either a new idea for, for what's going on in the job market, which I've maintained for a long time is kind of disconnected from what's happening with the funds rate and attempts to slow the economy because we're still putting people back to work. The Fed's going to have to rethink this outlook on jobs or it's going to have to concede to it. And the outlook is it's going to have to do more. And that's, I think, what the market is uh, is glomming onto here. Uh, when you look at our Fed survey, the only pivot they see, and I don't know how excited you want to get about this pivot, is from 75 down to 50 next month uh, in the December uh, meeting. Uh, but they still see the Fed going all the way up to 483 on uh, for a peak funds rate in March, which is a little earlier than the futures market is priced in. But there's the uh, that last line is probably the most important at this point, which is that they see the Fed maintaining that peak rate for up to 10 months. So you don't really get a real pivot, which is sort of rate cut until the end of next year. Um, and I don't know. I feel like the market's been really excited about this idea of pivoting from 75 to 50. I'm less excited by that because I still think the trajectory until the Federal Reserve gets some control on inflation, some sense of slack developing in the economy, I think the trajectory on rates is still up and higher. You know, you know Steve, I, I, we keep showing charts right now for our viewers out there of where the 10-year Treasury note yield sits. It's the benchmark. A lot of things are tied to it. But it seems as though there's been a, 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 a somewhat range-bound trade that's been happening with regard to yields. There's been a kind of higher end that we've seen just a little past four, four and a quarter, and then kind of a lower end of things where it kind of drifts a little bit below that and then gets a bit of a bounce. We saw that again today. We got close to the 30-day average yield for the 10-year benchmark Treasury just to bounce off that back above 4%. Do you think that the rates right now are, are, are in a spot where there is an equilibrium at play in your mind? <sighs> I, I mean, I think it could be close. The trouble that the market uh, look, the bond market has two reasons to be lower. The first is some sense that the Fed is capping rate hikes at some point. The second, though, is the idea that there would be a recession. Uh, and, and in that case, the uh, 10 year bond yields would trade lower um, in, in the instance where the bond market believes there's much higher inflation coming and a much higher funds rate. Uh, without a recession, I think that would be the reason it would go higher. But I think all the action uh, for the Fed is on the front end in the two-year and where that is right now, uh, uh, Dom. I'm not, I'm not thinking that. I think that you're right, that we are in some sort of a, of a range-bound trade here while the bond market figures out the trajectory of the economy here. All right, Steve, uh, l let's hang out here for a second. Let's bring in our halftime headliner for the day on this Tuesday. That's Mike Wilson. Well-known. He's Morgan Stanley's chief investment officer, also U.S. equity strategist and the new number one ranked portfolio strategist in Institutional Investors All-America Research Team for 2022. That's a lot of CV street cred that you got there, Mike. And you've been right for the better part of this year about where this market is headed. So with all that being said, we've seen a nice rally off the lows over the last, call it month, month and a half or so. Is the bottom in or do you think that there's still more downside left to come? Well, thanks, Don. Thanks for that uh, intro. I mean, look, I think uh, I think as you know, we we made this call. It's a tactical call a couple weeks ago. Uh, sometimes you get lucky with these. Sometimes you're not. Uh, but we felt like the tactical setup was pretty good going into the big week of you know earnings last week with the tech guys. 
we didn't expect good news. We didn't get good news. But then, of course, you know, the market held up despite those stocks falling by the wayside. And that's a, it's a technical market right now. Um, and, and we think that the, the price action that we got last week on the back of those earnings makes perfect sense because here's what we think the, the problem is. First of all, we don't think the bear market's over. OK, however, we don't think we're going to get enough capitulation on 2023 estimates to take us to new lows, meaning below 3,500. We did a lot of good work in September going into earnings season, much like in the second quarter. So now we're getting reprieve on that. Now the Fed situation clouds it even further because look, we know we're closer to the end than the beginning. We don't think that there's gonna be a giant pivot tomorrow, but markets have a way of getting in front of that, right? Just like, just like last year, right? The market started to price in a more hawkish Fed in January and that kind of persisted all year. Well, eventually the Fed will pivot. Eventually they will stop raising rates. We don't think that's tomorrow necessarily. Maybe it is, maybe they'll tell us that, but we think the market will get in front of that. So in order for this rally to continue, we need to see back-end rates come down further. And we don't know the answer to that. So as we said in our note this week, if we don't get that coming out of this meeting, then the rally's probably over. And then we have to worry about you know going into the new lows probably by beginning of next year as the earnings come down uh, more dramatically. Our gut tells us that we have more upside here through the election into Thanksgiving. Um, probably 4150 would be the upside bound of that. And then we'll probably pivot back in terms of our, our more you know core view which is that the bear market isn't complete until the earnings get down to more realistic levels for next year. Mike, I, I, you mentioned the earnings as one of the big kind of fundamental drivers for some of the calls that you've made. There have been a lot of folks out there who, who, who've talked about the earnings momentum that we've seen and, and the expectation for it to wane in the coming months and quarters. I wonder, we're just about halfway through this earnings season for the large caps right now. You've seen a lot of evidence from the microeconomic side. And I would point out that generally earnings have been better than expected, albeit on a lower benchmark. Still, though, there hasn't been this earnings Armageddon that, that, that some have predicted. Is it not going to come, this earnings Armageddon? Or do you think it's just going to come later on down the line, say, next quarter or the quarter after that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure it's an Armageddon, but it's definitely not what people are expecting for next year. But this is the reason we made the tactical call. We just we lost confidence that we were going to get the you know capitulation from companies this quarter on 23 because there's no reason for them to guide for next year. And we know how this works. The numbers for next year won't come down until companies actually guide lower. We think that's coming. So we don't think this earnings season tells us anything about next year. In fact, the numbers that we got last week tell us our thesis on earnings is probably more accurate than that, meaning negative operating leverage is now flowing through even the best business models in the world. And if that's the case, then the earnings degradation for next year is going to be more severe. We're thinking it's sort of close to $200 for 2023, and that's not in the stock market right now. Hey, now, Mike. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. I wanted, to, I wanted to get this point in and, and see what your thoughts were on earnings while you're on that subject. Um, from 1930 to 2021, earnings were positive in 61 of those years. So in the other 30 years, they were negative. There wasn't a ton of correlation between calendar year stock returns and whether or not earnings were up or down. Even if you look at it on a decade by decade basis, in the 1970s, you had a huge earnings growth up 157 percent. Stocks only returned 76 percent that year. Contrasted with the 80s, low earnings growth, amazing stock uh, stock price growth. So why should we focus um, so myopically on on this one idea of earnings in 2023 um, when it's very clear historically that that has not been a great variable uh, to go on if you're betting on forward 
uh, price projection for, for stock prices. That's 100% right, Josh. And you know how we think. We think forward, too. So I would suggest strongly next year is going to be way better than this year for the stock market, even though the earnings picture is going to be way worse. Um, the question is the path. So if I, were to, if I were to tell you that 12 months from today, I think the stock market's probably flat to up, potentially, okay? But the path is, you know, really, really risky because we have to go through this valley of earnings cuts. So I would, I would strongly suggest that we'll make a low in the first quarter of next year if we're right about earnings, right? Even if our negative earnings forecast comes to be true, the bottom will be in the first quarter. And, the, you know, so that means you're going to have three really good quarters after that. That's how we're thinking about it right now. Obviously, we don't have a crystal ball. But you're absolutely right to be, you know, telling viewers, by the time the news gets that bad, you're absolutely wanting to be in there buying. We just don't think it's gotten bad enough yet. Hi, Mike. Thanks for being with us. One of the things that I've been wondering a lot about is, so if, if your scenario plays out that we've got earnings coming in poorly in 2023, the market makes a new low in 2023, usually what follows is some kind of economic recession. But really what the market could do then afterwards, obviously in a recovery, is I think the biggest question that investors have. Many are still looking to big cap, big cap tech stocks, looking at the growthy areas of the market and continuing to buy those. We saw flows into those in October uh, in pretty large amounts. Do you think tech and growth leads on the other side of this, or is this whole value rotation, cyclical rotation, something that lasts? Yeah, Liz, I mean, you know how this works. I mean, the market uh, will signal ahead of time. So what we're really focused on right now is kind of what's outperforming in the down and what's outperforming in the up. And what we've noticed is EM, the Dow, okay, as opposed to the S&P, and then small caps are starting to pick their heads up a little bit. Uh, both in the downside and the upside on a relative basis. And that's the early sign that the leadership change is, is going to be significant, probably in the next economic cycle and next earning cycle. So it doesn't mean it's all value, no growth. What it means is that the old regime of paying ridiculous multiples for open-ended growth that's not profitable, that error. And, and there's a lot of great companies out there that don't have those characteristics. And that's what we're trying to do. Josh was saying it earlier. I think it's dead right. You should be thinking about right now, what do you want to own for the next two years? Okay, not the next two months. And two sectors that look really, really cheap right now, they probably have uh, earnings power going forward is going to be the banks and energy. And those, that's why those groups are kind of holding up pretty well. It doesn't mean they can't, you know, have a big drawdown. The market's going to make a new low. But that's the right strategy. You know, it's a stock picking market now. It's a sector picking market now into whatever this bear market's going to bring for the next three or four months. The worst of it's behind us. But, you know, it can still be a little bit scary at the index level. And we saw that last week with the big names. And, but your job and our job is you know, to pick stocks and pick sectors to try and outperform. So, Mike, what are you more worried about for 2023 in earnings? Are you worried about margins or are you worried about revenues? Well, it's really both, Stephanie. I mean, the, the reality is, is that, you know, we're not even if we don't have a recession, it's going to feel like a recession from an earnings standpoint because nominal GDP is really you know, the growth rates coming down dramatically. We, we showed this. In a chart this week, I mean, we think inflation is coming down hard next year because M2 growth is already telling you that. That's your revenue growth. But because of the, the degradation, the speed and the, the dramatic nature of that degradation, you're going to see incredibly negative operating leverage. So the bulk of the damage will come to the operating leverage side, meaning margins. And, and that's, that hasn't played out yet. We're just starting to see that. And we saw in the tech stocks last week. And we think it's going to be pretty broad in the next two or three quarters. All right. That's Mike Wilson over at Morgan Stanley. Uh, thank you very much, Mike. We'll see you soon. Yes. All right. Mike Wilson talked about the, the growth, the committee debates. What's next for those mega cap tech stocks coming up next? As you can see there, growth still underperforming value. Halftime is back in two minutes.
Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, as you can see there, we're just down about a half a percent for all the major indices off the worst levels of the day. October, there was the best month for the so-called value sectors of the market in nearly two years. And while technology still posted a gain for the month, it was one of the relative underperformers during that span, with the sector falling again today. Uh, Bryn, I want to bring it to you. This is a sector that gets a lot of notoriety for good reason. It is the most important sector in the entire market from a mathematical perspective. It's the most heavily weighted one, so it carries a lot of influence over where things go. Is this an environment where that mega cap tech trade has now become attractive enough to start dipping your toes and start building positions? I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of dispersion between these names. I mean, you have Facebook on one side, which, which makes no sense what they're, how, how they're spending. I think the, the stock, as long as they continue that revenue spend, uh, is going to be in the doghouse. Then you have you know, the apples, which are, which are growing, continue to grow services. So I would say there's going to be dispersion of returns within those big mega caps. I think it's important to go back and look at that 2000, that 2000 analog, because if you look at you know, in 2000, to 2021, there are only two stocks that actually remained in the top 10, Microsoft and J&J. So we're talking about tech, so Microsoft. Microsoft was able to retain in the top 10, but from 2002, Dom, to 2012, Microsoft was at 32 and 02. It was at 32 in 2012. There was a decade where really it did nothing. And so I think investors really need to think through which individual companies they own, because I don't think those FANG names per se are going to continue to be the drivers going forward. You will have other tech names that, that come up and do better. So, so, Josh, I mean, Bryn brings up a great point because it's not a, a lot of folks out there and myself included. Forget about the dead money days, so to speak, for some of these big tech stocks out there. And Microsoft is one of them in this in this situation. Yeah. Microsoft Apple, some of the names that have been the real kind of darlings over the last 12, 13 years, 
It's is it fair to say that there's a chance it could be dead money for a while? Or is this one of those, you know, hey, they always come back and they have since arguably dot com. So there's a couple of things. And one of them is that size normally is the enemy of performance. There was this very aberrant moment in 2020 and 2021 where we watched the highest market cap stocks have the highest performance in share price relative to the rest of the market. And that is not like historically there are almost no examples of that. And it defied logic. And arguably, a lot of that excess has been worked off this uh, this year. Those stocks in 2020 and a lot of 2021 were looked at like these Swiss Army knives. They buy back stock. They do R&D. They're innovative. They have dividends. Um, they can do it all. It's really hard to maintain that quarter after quarter, year after year. So the most normal thing on Earth is that we've seen dispersion among the fangs. And some of them are doing better than others. And some of them have good days while others have bad days. That's what the stock market is supposed to do. It is not supposed to have a group of five stocks that are completely invincible and can double, triple, quadruple in value while the rest of the market stands still. So that's being corrected. I think it's healthy for the market. I think we should throw out the acronyms for a little while and just be a little bit more realistic about what we think the greatest companies in America can actually deliver for their shareholders. I'd be okay, Steph, if we threw out some of the acronyms for a little bit. Uh, but I want to focus <laughs> on two, two names, two <laughs> names, because they're ones that you own, yep. and they've acted and behaved very differently over the last few weeks. One of them is Apple, and one of them is Facebook slash Meta Platforms. Yeah. Let's bring your thoughts in for both of them, because for both of them, they could be very different investment theses at this point. Yeah, I mean, Meta was a mess in terms of what they're going to spend over the next two years. $69 billion in two years. I mean, that's huge. And the payback is, is years to come. We don't even know what the ROI is going to be. So, so the quarter itself actually was not so bad, right? I mean, engagement came in line and free cash flow was much better than expected. Reels has a $3 billion revenue run rate right now. So I can give you the positives, but it's the spend that you're not going to get what Mike Wilson was just talking about. You're not going to get operating leverage as a result, right? Because margins are going to be under pressure. So it's cheap. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm long term, but I'm also very frustrated for sure. Um, on Apple, I just feel like everybody owns Apple. I mean, 7% of the S&P 500 waiting. That's just huge, huge. And so for me, I just think it, I, don't, I was not that impressed with the quarter. I don't think it was a bad quarter, but services is, was disappointing. And that's why many people own this stock, right? Because that is that the margins are double. Uh, of, of the products business. And so to me, that, that was a little disappointing. And we're getting early indications in that October also was weak in terms of services and the app store being down and in China being down. So to me, I, I have like a 1% position in one portfolio. I run three, so I, I'm not very big. Um, it's held up like a champ. Uh, but I just don't see a lot of catalyst for the upside here. Wait and see, because the fourth quarter weighs more heavily for in sure. terms of the retail picture for Apple than it does for, say, meta platforms. All right. Coming up now on the show, a trillion dollar area of the financial market may be about to face its most significant period of stress that we've seen in a long time. It's a story you have to hear about. We're following the money, the private money, coming up next on Halftime Report. Keep it right here. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. 
Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Bertha Coombs, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. United Airlines pilots have overwhelmingly rejected a tentative contract deal. Their union says the agreement, which included raises of nearly 17 percent, quote, fell short. Just yesterday, Delta pilots voted to authorize a strike if their airline and the union cannot come to an agreement. In Brazil, road blockages have continued to spread. Supporters of President Bolsonaro are protesting his defeat in Sunday's vote at hundreds of locations across the country. Bolsonaro has still not conceded the election, but a government official says the Brazilian president will speak today and he will not contest his loss. And, well, Swifties already know this, but Taylor Swift has announced a concert tour for next year. The 27-date Eras tour will start on March 18th in Glendale, Arizona. The news comes as Swift sets yet another new record with her new album, taking over the top 10 spots on Billboard's Hot 100 list. It's the first time any artist has done that. The title song of her new album, Midnight's, is number one. And Dom, she ties Bruce Springsteen, Drake, and Barbara Streisand for the most number one albums. Only Jay-Z and the Beatles have had more. Taylor Swift, Bertha Coombs is a force <laughs> of music nature. Thank you very much for the update exactly. there. Well, KKR, the private equity firm, reporting a loss as the value of its private equity holdings dropped. The earnings come as the trillion-dollar private credit industry may be showing some signs of stress. Our own Leslie Picker is following the money, so to speak. Leslie, what can you tell us about the stresses in credit? Yeah, Dom, so it's private equity earnings week by and large. And while KKR's traditional private equity is down 8%, its so-called alternative credit division, which houses private credit, is up 3% over the last 12 months. The private credit industry has ballooned in recent years as regulation forced traditional banks to rein in lending. That dynamic is causing KKR co-CEO Scott Nuttall uh, to say on the firm's earnings call this morning that uh, the private credit deployment is, quote, dramatically more interesting from a risk reward standpoint than they saw even a few months ago. Aries CEO Michael Araghetti said on his call last week that the, quote, absolute level of interest rates, at least until this point, has not shown up in any kind of portfolio distress, while noting that there's a lot to be concerned about on the forward trajectory. And that's what's really important here, because others are starting to raise concerns as well. A recent report by the Kroll Bond Rating Agency said the shadow banking industry is about to embark on the, quote, most significant period of credit stress since becoming such an integral part of the economy, that $1.2 trillion worth. That's because, in part, this type of debt is typically floating rates. So as the Fed continues to hike, investors generate more income, but the borrowers have to shell out more cash to service higher interest payments. Kroll applied interest rate stresses across thousands of companies and found that a terminal Fed funds rate of 525 basis points would lead to a 60% increase in interest expense. As a result, more than 16% of companies wouldn't generate the needed cash flow to cover the higher payments, a statistic that doesn't even incorporate the impact on margins from a potential recession and inflation. The concern is that may lead to a wave of defaults, which would, of course, create losses for investors as well, Dom. Uh, so, so, Leslie, I mean, 
Are borrowers in, in some ways hedged from this interest rate risk? Are there steps they take to, to do so to kind of insure against some of these bigger stresses? So it's hard to get a complete picture because, of course, this is all private data out there. Um, however, just kind of reading through the clues that we can find, Aries spoke on their earnings call and said that currently about 30% of their U.S. companies are hedged. However, those hedges do roll off in about six to nine months. So the runway, um, you know, isn't indefinite. And so I think middle of next year is when we could really potentially see some of the impact of this. Um, and that's kind of aligns with what we've heard from bank CEOs with regard to when the, you know, consumer could feel more pain, when we could see a potential recession. Of course, all of that could change, but um, that's kind of the, the timeline by which people are looking at here. All right, just one more indicator. Everyone's watching credit markets for sure. Leslie Picker, thank you very much for that story. Straight ahead on this show, Uber popping on a revenue beat and strong guidance. Josh Brown over here owns it. He's going to weigh in coming up next. Keep it right here. All right, shares of Uber are surging today after a strong revenue beat. Wedbush calling it a step in the right direction. Uh, the stock is up 12%. It's traded 59 million shares. That's a massive surge in volume. Josh, you own it. How do you feel about the, the story today? I think the stock belongs at 50. It's not a like, prediction that it's going there or, or anything by the end of the year. I think it's one of the most mispriced securities. People are treating it like it's one of these like growth companies that wasn't set up to make money, blah, blah, blah. In February... Dara did the pivot where he said, we're going to focus on cash flow generation and profits. And they've been delivering all year. And the second quarter uh, was their first quarter with positive uh, uh, cash flow. They've done like $700 million in EBITDA this year. Um, this is a company that's got a high multiple. It always has. It came public with a high multiple. Tons of controversy. They, they cleaned all of it up. The, the thing with the, uh, the, the driver rights bill or whatever is a red herring. Nothing's going to change on that. And they've been public and they've said even if it did go to that, that would be an Obama era level of regulation that we were already living with. And it was fine. Um, you had pro- you had uh, Prop 22 or whatever in California that went decisively in Uber's direction in the most liberal state in the country. It's very unlikely that if you list the risks for Uber, that would make sense to be one of the top risks. As far as the upside, this is a company that has had more success cross-selling on their platform than almost any other technology company you could think of. It's Amazon-esque. They got the grocery people getting delivered meals. They got the delivered meals people getting delivered alcohol. Uber Uber won now, 10 million people. They're going to get to a place where they're going to get to 20. This is a service that's a subscription, and it's, and it's driving huge usage of the platform. So the drivers are happy. The users are happy. Cash flow is up. Revenue is up. Rides are up. I don't understand how this stock has a two in front of it. It makes no sense. The market is wrong. I'm right. So that's your final trade. <laughs> and for tomorrow, too. All right. So, so that's, the, that's the earnings headliner. We've also got a big M&A headliner. That's Johnson & Johnson buying a Biomed. I've been, I've been pronouncing it wrong for 10 years now. A Biomed for $16 billion in enterprise value, 380 bucks a share in cash. Stephanie, you own this J&J 
rather. Yeah. What do you think about this Abiomed deal? I mean, I like the deal. It's a little rich at 14 times EV to total revenues, right? But it does give them J&J some size and scale. It'll be their 12th med tech company with it that, ha- that has a billion dollars in annualized revenue at the company. So they have, uh, it's, they've got great products, um, but it's not going to be really material in terms of earnings. I think it's about five cents accretive to 2024 numbers. So not a needle mover to me. All right. And one last word, healthcare overall, Liz, is, is it a place you want to be? I have liked healthcare for a long time. You look at it in the large cap space, it's traditionally defensive and insulated from a lot of those interest rate moves, move down into the mid and small cap space, and it's growthier because you've got a lot of biotech and pharma in there. I really like healthcare as a long-term play. All right. Coming up next on the show, Mike Santoli joins us now with his midday word. Markets right now off their session lows. The Dow's down about a quarter of one percentage point. Halftime will be back after this. You know what time it is. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Senior Markets commentator Michael Santoli joins us now from the Stock Exchange with his midday word. An interesting reversal, you could argue, maybe tied to the jobs numbers. What does that say about the jobs numbers we have coming up later on this week? Yeah, Dom, certainly at the surface level, it seemed like one of those, you know, good news for the economy, not great news, at least at the reflex level for the stock market. That was the top down result. Yet not enough job openings uh, were lost, uh, presumably, was the conclusion, although the prices paid number within the ISM report did mitigate some of that. It seems like at least for manufacturing goods, you are seeing some disinflation. I think still the theme, though, is the top of the market, meaning the largest stocks continue to suffer the most. Today, you have the uh, mega cap growth segment down 1.1% at the moment. You have the median Russell 1000 stock up about a quarter or a third of a percent. So it's still this kind of the many over the few. Uh, I don't know if that's going to continue. Clearly, a lot of this is just preliminaries before we get to the Fed meeting tomorrow. And all about how uh, Powell characterizes where we are in terms of how restrictive policy already is, whether he's seeing signs of slowing. Obviously, all the check, uh, the boxes are not checked off what he'd like to see. Uh, but is it going to be a more balanced message rather than outright uh, aggressive hawkishness? I would say the market's not as overbought as it was the last couple of times you had one of these relief rallies peter out. All right, Michael Santoli with the midday word from the Stock Exchange. Thank you. We'll see you later on this afternoon. All right, John. We've got more trades coming up ahead. A new street out, a street, new street note out on the best stock ideas as we hit the month of November. The committee debates those picks coming up next on the Halftime Report. Keep it right here. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. J.P. Morgan is out with a list of the best stock ideas for the month of November. A number of names on that list are actually owned by this here investment committee today, including General (laughs) Motors. And I look at you, Bryn, because you own it. What do you think about that General Motors story? I think everything has a price. So I bought GM as a trade. I bought it a few months ago. I think it's a good value in the mid-30s. It's a cheap stock, but these cars are expensive. We all know the EV story. They also own about 80% of Cruise, which I think is a great little option for the stock long term. If it gets up into the mid 40s, I'll be a seller and I can also sell calls against it. So it was really coming in at the right price. I thought it was expensive in the 40s and 50s, but down in the 30s, I think it's a good value here. Another name on this JP Morgan focus list is AbV, a biotech pharma type name. And Bryn, you own this one as well. What do you think? So I think AbbVie really sums up what's working this year in the market. AbbVie's up around 
8%. You know, they focus on immunology, oncology, and aesthetics. It's got around a 4% dividend. It's growing. And so this is like one of those companies that you can own long-term. That 4% dividend is nice. Plus it's got a little bit of volatility. So I can sell calls against that as well to amplify the return in addition. So I think as we've all talked about pharma and healthcare, you know, Abby's a name that checks so many boxes to be defensive, but also to have growth with a low valuation. All right, I'm now gonna tilt the conversation on this focus list towards a couple of consumer names on relatively opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Steph, I look at you first because we'll start with Dollar general on the dollar store side of things. I like it. It's a value proposition story. They have consumables is about 80% of their total revenues. And I like that. So it acts like a a staple stock and it trades at about 20 times, which is not cheap, but cheaper than the consumer staples sector as a whole. So I like it. I think they also have pricing power and, uh, and, and they have you know, the trade down theme as well, right, uh, as, a, as a theme in general. So I like that one. All right. So let's trade up then <laughs> towards the aspirational side of things and the maybe luxury side of things. That's Estee Lauder, cosmetics, self-care. What do you think? Yeah, Estee is going to be ugly on, in China. We, we know why. But the rest of the world should be good. L'Oreal gave us a clue that North America was quite strong. So did Ulta. So I think that rest of the world will carry the day. But I don't think the stock positively re-rates higher until China re- uh, reopens, unfortunately. All right. Estee Lauder, Dollar General, General Motors and AbV, your J.P. Morgan top picks. We've got final trades coming up next on Halftime. Keep it right here. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime podcast now. Welcome back to Halftime Report. We want to call your attention right now what's happening with social media stocks like Snap and Meta Platforms. Okay, the reason why, folks, they are both popping, we are following an interview in Axios with an FCC commissioner, Brendan Carr, who has said now and told Axios in an interview that the Council on Foreign Investment in the U.S., or CFIUS as it's known, should take action to ban TikTok in the United oh, States. Wow. So you have an wow. FCC commissioner telling Axios, CFIUS should look to ban TikTok in the US. For that reason, you see Snap shares and meta platforms, other social media stocks with US-based operations spiking on that news. Don't so tell again, my daughter. This is, again, yeah. this is the reason why. This is just a reaction to this Axios interview. But again, a big deal here. That's the reason why those stocks are on the move. Mm. Uh, it's wow. time now for final trades. We've got about a minute left for people to get through. So, Bryn, talking to him, we'll talk to you first about what your final trade is. XPH. It's the S&P Pharma ETF. I like this ETF. A lot of sector ETFs have one or two names that make up 40 to 50 percent. This has about each name is 3 percent. You get Eli, Lilly, um, Merck, et cetera, et cetera. Great, great pharmaceutical defensive and growth. All right, Liz, how about you? Well, I can't use financials for the third time in a row, so I chose (laughs) the S&P equal weight today. That's a bet against the big guys, forces you into some of the under-owned sectors and names that are actually protecting better on the downside and doing a little better on the upside. All right, Stephanie Link. Chevron, I I continue to like Chevron. Diversified revenue mix, uh, great free cash flow. Break-evens are at $45 oil. So they're minting money and they're returning it to shareholders. And Josh Brown. I I said a lot about Uber already. Want to uh, use the balance of my time to say rest in peace. Takeoff of the Migos, (laughs) 28 years old. Very sad story. All right. Thanks very much, guys, for being part of the show. Thanks for being here with the Halftime Report. The exchange with Brian Sullivan begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. 
can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.